And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, enterprise risk management is soaking deeper into most federal agencies. Plus, how the National Science Foundation is dealing with a really big budget increase. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, automation is taking hold at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and cutting down on manual tasks. But employees spend a lot of time supervising bots running at their workstations. The agency says it's fixing that with semi-unattended bots that run in the background, with fully unattended bots later this year. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman listened in on a panel with program manager Michael Paschal. We deal with people and immigration data. A lot of data, a lot of it is also paper-based. But the cool thing about it is is that there's a lot of opportunity to understand how some of this, you know, from a low-hanging fruit perspective, I'll say it doesn't really focus that much on the immigration system. It focuses more on our HR systems, which is available at every agency. All of these functions are, are pretty synonymous and similar so that, you know, everyone's got time cards. Everyone has to make sure that new employees are onboarded because you need a workforce in order to be productive. Automating the processes to be able to bring these people on faster and make sure that everybody has everything set up. Those are the type of opportunities that we looked for as low-hanging fruit opportunities to initially jump in the pool for automation. So if you really want to make the biggest dent with your resources, go and automate a high-impact, high-value workflow or process and get your resources back, right? You want your people to be able to focus on the hard things that only a person can do. People spend so much time worrying that, you know, we're going to take these jobs away or, um, you know, there's a barrier to entry because of security. If you focus on the high-impact use cases, you're going to get buy-in, and people will not want to go back. What are those swing-for-the-fence use cases over at USCIS? Okay, so the latest thing that we've been doing is, like I said, we deal with a lot of paper applications, specifically people applying for asylum, which means that they need help, right? It's scary. I need to leave where I'm from and come here because there's a threat against my life. So there were front logs, which we call the paper applications, of of over 30,000 applications where people were basically transcribing them manually to computers. One of the things we did is in, in I don't know, maybe like four or five weeks, we built an automation where you scan in that and using simple OCR, it's lifting that data and entering. You do a manual uh, validation really quickly and it's pushing that data to the case management system. The ability, I mean, that's a difference between taking 30 minutes to manually look at a paper application, between less than 10 minutes for a bot to go through, extract the data, submit it to a case management system, and now that person has an opportunity to come to the States and and seek asylum. Those are the opportunities where it's changing the way that we do business. Typically, when you have a problem, you just hire more people and throw more resources, more people transcribing. It's like we don't have to do that. And... Not only is this process being done at multiple service centers, but we just standardized the way to do it. The easiest way to standardize a process is to automate it. Now everyone's doing consistently. The entry level for training is basically non-existent because it's being automated, and your throughput is faster. So you start making a dent there. You know, we tried it with Asylum. Then what's to say we can't start doing it with premium processing forms, you know, where we're starting to rake in more money, bring in more people in their applications and get them processed. 
And Michael, there is a lot of data. There's only more being produced every day. And to, I think, as we said earlier in the conversation, get that, that signal to noise, getting you know the most information out of the data, what seems to be uh, top of mind for you in terms of, again, tying this data to the AI? So we're going to walk back to you know, human in the loop for a second. You guys are familiar with automation with, uh, with the bots. You know, there are attended bots, which run off of a person's credential, so it acts as if it's that person. And then there's unattended bots, which you know, run off of an NPE or any type of certificate to operate as its own entity and basically operate perpetually or however long you want it to, right? They don't take lunch breaks. So one of the things that we've been doing, I'm going to tell you guys about, you know, we can say all these good things that we're doing. I'm going to tell you some of my challenges. You get to hear my problems today. In dealing with people's data, Everyone thinks the biggest concern that we have is PII. We know how to handle PII. It's the format of the data. How do you build a model around data that's typed and handwritten, and you can imagine how many different types of handwriting there are out there. Like sometimes people are writing like they broke their hand. So to train a model with test data does not really represent the operational data that we're going to be seeing and people speak different languages, which is like one of the biggest challenges. So I go back to operator in the loop. One of the ways that we're approaching this is building models. We're starting to build models and allow users to do manual data validation as validation for that model. And as we get more confident and mature in this approach, that's when we get the opportunity to start transitioning to unattended automations using you know, AI engines and, and models to be able to process this data 24 hours a day, that's our goal. But in order to do that, you need to have that confidence. And I think that's gained by keeping the human in the loop, by understanding the data, you know, on a limited use, and then expanding eventually to, to unattended bots, you know, so that now we have full up and running models in bots, and, and we're starting to make a bigger dent into our issues. But like I said, the format of the data and having it be representative has been one of our biggest challenges. Well, just to follow up on, on what you're saying, attended bots versus unattended bots, is USCIS rolling out unattended bots? And if so, where are they being used? Right now, we're using attended bots and what I'll call semi-attended bots. Attended bots typically take up your computer Right? Like you're not able to do any other tasks while it's operating, which we found to be an issue. A lot of people are like, this is great. You got a bot. Mission complete, right? No. Like, like I have a job to do. I can't sit here idly while this bot is running on my computer. So what we did is we create, implemented semi-attended bots. So we use Citrix for workplace as a service. What this does is it allows us to have a second window, right? Um, like picture in picture. And you run the automation from that Citrix environment and it allows people to use their computers again. So now we're doubling your capacity right there. But we still have the problem where people only work eight-hour shifts. So our goal this year is right now we're trying to understand how the credentialing is going to work for unattended bots. But what we're trying to do is figure out how the credentialing will work so that we can have these perpetual bots running more than eight hours a day to kind of help us put a dent in. So they're coming. We're just figuring out some of these challenges. I think the benefit is, is that at DHS, a lot of our systems, a lot of our security requirements are similar enough that if one of us figures it out, then we should all be sharing that information with, with each other. Here's Pascal talking about opportunities at his agency for advancing the type of work that he's been describing. So aside from the obvious job opportunities of actually being like a developer for that, I would say the more low-key and unknown opportunity is 
we really, I like to say, like, we develop by community. Like, our subject matter experts, our business, our lines of business, they are heavily embedded in our development process. So as we are improving these automations and developing them, they're seeing each development stage. They're seeing how the automation has grown. So they actually become a part of our community of practice, which gives them an opportunity to not only participate and see it and validate it, we actually have them demonstrate a lot of these automations when we're doing demos to leadership. I think that actually sends a stronger message if your end user is saying, hey, you know, I life used to be hard because I worked eight hours on this and now this is being processed in the background while I sit there and work on other more meaningful stuff. But that gives them an opportunity to get their curiosity going. And, you know, when people want to learn, I think that automation and, and AI and I think all of these skills should be something that's available for everybody. Michael Paschal, Program Manager for Robotic Process Automation at USCIS, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how the National Science Foundation is dealing with a big budget increase, a record. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Thanks to last year's legislation to help the semiconductor industry, the National Science Foundation got a record $9.9 billion budget for fiscal 2023. Already, the NSF has widened its collaboration with the Energy Department, established partnerships with four big semiconductor companies, even launched a new artificial intelligence institute devoted to speech pathology. Here with more of what it's all up to, NSF Director Dr. Setramon Panchanathan. Dr. P., good to have you back. Tom, it's always great to be back with you. And let's talk about the budget. I kind of simplified how that $9.9 billion came in. There was some appropriations, some extra money from the semiconductor bill, but this is really an expansion in all ways, percentage-wise, dollar-wise. Do you feel equipped to be able to use it effectively in the time given? Tom, since we spoke last, I, I emphasize the importance of how talent and ideas are democratized all across our nation, that the innovation potential resides in every part of our nation. I'm delighted to report that with this increased investment and thanks to the Biden-Harris administration and the bipartisan support from Congress, that we have gotten this infusion of resources at this very, very important time for our nation, where we're able to therefore unleash those talent and ideas, where we're able to build the innovation centers all across our nation. This is the moment, and I'm so grateful and glad that we are able to move this path forward for our nation into the future. But, you know, agencies have gotten these influxes of money for a variety of reasons, COVID, semiconductors, infrastructure. Do you feel that you have the organizational power to be able to manage and expend the money in an effective way? Because that's, that's a challenge. Absolutely, Tom, because NSF has been, as you know, again, to an earlier conversation that we had, I had talked about the fact that there are so many ideas, so many good possibilities that are out there that people tell me that it is not being funded at the fullest level. And here is an opportunity for us to really do the right thing at the right time. And so I feel that this investment is perfectly timed. 
There's a lot of great ideas and great talent to be nurtured. I repeat myself here. And in order to do that, these resources is very, very timely to be able to deploy it all across our nation. And so then in the, say, research grant agenda, then you can probably pull in a lot of maybe institutions that have not historically participated and yet have the brain power that they could bring value to a grant from NSF. Perfectly said, Tom. I've been traveling all around the country with some of the leaders uh, in our congressional delegations. So what I've done, I've watched firsthand. I've been, just in the last few months, I've been to Mississippi State, Clemson, Pittsburgh State, Wichita State, you know, in New Hampshire, everywhere. And wherever I go, I see the tremendous talent and potential that is there. So clearly, we are in a moment where we can really deploy these resources very effectively in terms of getting to the outcomes that we seek. And when we talk about proposals coming from those institutions that have not had their presence at NSF, I ask the question, why? Why is it that if talent and ideas are democratized and are everywhere across our nation, what then precludes, for example, a minority-serving institution or a research two institution or institutions from places or community colleges and others which do not have their fair share of being able to have their ideas represented? It turns out, Tom, that it is because of the fact that the research infrastructure that is available to help faculty to put their ideas or researchers to put their ideas in a form that transcends the gold standard merit review of NSF is something that is not present everywhere. So we have launched a new program called Granted. It is an acronym, Growing Research Access Through Nationally Transformative Equity and Diversity. That's what Granted stands for. Simply put, it's a virtual research office that will be available for any faculty member, any researcher, any institution from any of those institutions that we talked about, community colleges, minority-serving institutions, institutions like the Research 2 institutions, to be able to also participate and partake in this unbelievable future that we're all envisioning for our nation. And when you mention the diversity under this granted, does that also extend to people that may have really what seem like off-the-wall ideas about a particular problem? Because often big solutions, transformative ideas come from people that go counter to the accepted wisdom or grain. Again, Tom, that's a good point. NSF can be best described as a high-risk, high-reward agency. There are many, many case studies to showcase in this context of showing that when you invest in those, if you want to call them you know, out-of-the-box ideas or sometimes even crazy ideas, they then have been the source of unbelievable rewards. And there are many examples, and we won't go into that in detail here. But that's what NSF does best. And so absolutely correct. We are going to be able to unleash those transformative ideas, those fundamental ideas, those out-of-the-box ideas, so that we might then ensure that we are unleashing those possibilities for the future and keeping us in the vanguard of innovation and competitiveness as a nation into the future. We're speaking with Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. And under the granted program, some of these newer institutions that are coming into this research orbit for whatever topic specifically might be, does the program also include let's say, building their capacity to be able to use government grants and understand that whole process and make sure that what they do meets you know, the requirements to fulfill under grants programs other than just the research itself. So are you building that capacity so that they can kind of permanently be part of that ecosystem? Absolutely. What we're doing here is not only helping with finding opportunities and then translating the ideas through successful proposal writing and management, grant management, pre-award, post-award help, help with securing the appropriate partnerships, help with IP and other kinds of issues that typically you know, people get help in the established institutions. All of this support will be provided. 
so that over time, with the grants coming in, that they will be able to build their own capacities to do those things also. And so it's, uh, it's if you want to put it the best way, it's a spiraling up in terms of being able to participate rather than getting stuck or spiraling down in terms of not being able to participate. So that's what we're trying to do at NSF, and I'm very confident that we will be able to change the demographic of participation and therefore the unbelievable ideas that will be unleashed because of that. And I guess if you think optimistically, that could transmit from those institutions out to their communities, maybe at the pre-college level, so people can envision what's possible when their brains are engaged in STEM. That's well said, Tom. You know, there are two things that happen. When these institutions are successful, guess where most of the diverse population of students go to? They go to first to these institutions. And therefore, now we are guaranteeing the diversity of ideas, diversity of talent, diversity of experiences. All of that is captured by all the students that go through these institutions, as well as, as you said, empowering the K-12 systems in those regions. And at the other end, empowering the innovation ecosystems also. So the jobs of the future and the entrepreneurial environments of the future, new industries of the future are created right there. So it becomes successful innovation ecosystems all across our nation. Now, when you're dealing with partnerships with companies like Ericsson, IBM, Intel, and Samsung, switching gears here, those are pretty savvy players with a lot of talent and engineering know-how. Tell us about those partnerships. And this is under some of the CHIPS Act and the, the semiconductor stimulus money that is going through NSF. What's going on with those partnerships? So, Tom, on many, many programs, you talked about the AI Institute earlier in your introduction. Take any of the programs, quantum, AI, advanced wireless, semiconductors, biotechnology. It's about partnering with a lot of companies which are already engaged in this, also partnering with young entrepreneurs who are thinking about the future companies. And so in this situation that you're talking about, this example of a partnership with essentially Ericsson, IBM, Intel, and Samsung is around the future of semiconductors called the FUSE program. Essentially, it is going to support fundamental research, enabling the core design of semiconductor materials, devices, and systems that will propel the U.S. semiconductor manufacturing and applications beyond the limits of Moore's law and discover new application spaces. So that's what we want to do, to be in the vanguard of how we look at the future for semiconductors as it plays a role in every aspect of our lives these days. Right, because optical etching and the deposition techniques that are common now, and they're still advancing on those, but at some point those will cease to yield greater and greater numbers of transistors and logic on a chip. And so there are fundamentally different ways of approaching transistors, let's say, and associated components that gets us out of applied research and into basic. It is all the way, the spectrum of all of that, applied of course, fundamental basic research, applied research, translational research, and then in partnership with companies, how do we then translate those technologies into the marketplace and how do we also build new companies for the future? All of that together working symbiotically. And it's interesting that you know Ericsson is European-based and Samsung is Korean-based. And so how does that figure in, that U.S. taxpayer money flowing to foreign companies, how is that all managed? Now, in fact, it's the other way about, right? Those companies are investing and co-investing with us so that we might launch on these programs, right? Those companies believe that the talent and ideas in the United States is going to position them to be competitive. These are like-minded partners, you know, companies coming from our like-minded partners who believe in the fundamental aspects, tenets of scientific progress, openness, transparency, reciprocity, research integrity, respect for intellectual property, and a whole host of other values that we share. So then it is possible for us to work together, hyper-partner, so that we can deliver for our citizens and solve global grand challenge problems. 
And will some of the results of this type of fundamental research be available only to those companies, or is there some way of disseminating it in the economy for the next Silicon Valley? So basically what we do is when these companies participate in this kind of a consortium mode, we give them a non-exclusive, worldwide, paid-up, non-transferable, irrevocable, royalty-free license to all the intellectual property rights and any inventions that are conceived or first reduced to practice in the performance of the program work under the funding agreement. But then if people then want to take it up and then start to develop exclusive partnerships, then they will work with the appropriate researchers or research groups and then start to engage in that kind of a forum. So that's how we approach these things. Got it. And is that underway yet? And is there a, like a locus of this physically, a building or an office? Because these are big outfits. And how does it all work functionally? So these are funded projects, right? At the end of the day, people, when we have these programs wired together, we then send a call for proposals. Then there are universities partnering with other entities coming to us with proposals and then saying that we are going to be able to deliver on what you're envisioning here with these companies. And then we fund the best quality proposals through our gold standard merit review. And then the work then gets conducted there. And NSF is able to catalyze, invest, enable, and partner with these institutions to make sure that they are delivering on the outcomes. So you're mainly a convener almost in this particular context. Yeah, you're a convener, but also an investor. Investor is a powerful way of shaping the future and the directions of how you want to steer the amazing ideas into outcomes that we think are important for the nation at this time. Sure, money in the game is better than skin in the game. You could say that, yes. I wanted to ask you about the relationship with the Energy Department. This is long standing, but there's been a fairly step function widening of that between the NSF and the Energy Department, expanded collaboration. What are some of the purposes behind that, and what form will that take? So, you know, Department of Energy and NSF have been great partners. We have partnered on several things, including large facilities where we co-invest in those. So basically what we have tried to do here is to see if we can further expand the intensity, the breadth, and speed of collaboration between NSF and the Department of Energy's Office of Science. As I said, we have many outstanding long-term collaborations, and this memorializes our commitment to extend the partnership to all areas of research funded by NSF and DOE's Office of Science. So the overarching goal of this MOU is to add value in what we do for the nation by leveraging each other's strengths to advance the frontiers of science, engineering, and education. As you can imagine, there's tons of opportunity here, Tom, whether it is clean energy, it is climate, whether it is a whole host of other fundamental scientific discoveries and innovations. I mean, this opens up tremendous possibilities, and I'm a huge fan of partnerships. You alluded to this earlier public-private partnership, interagency partnership, international partnership with like-minded partners, and partnership with economic development ecosystems, partnership with entrepreneurial ecosystems. That's how we are going to move this nation at speed and scale. Because, you know, energy is a broad word, and there are many forms of energy under research, including nuclear, but beyond the proving of concepts and basic research, energy has to be translated into production so that energy is produced at the scale a country this size needs. So where does the research collaboration begin and end, or does it go all the way through proving grounds to see if concepts can work at scale? The research collaborations go all the way through, Tom, and then there are areas where we hyper-partner in basic research, of course. There are areas of applied research that we partner in. We launched our technology innovation partnerships directorate called the TIP directorate. We talked about it briefly last time when we spoke. And now it is real because we are launching the regional innovation engines program. Guess what? We have representation from every state, every territory of our nation, presenting fantastic ideas of their innovation. 
And so how do we then start to, as you rightly point out, how do we then start to take these ideas and applied research concepts, then translate them into technologies of the future by creating the entrepreneurial ecosystems and the industries of the future? And that's what we're doing. We are going to be partnering at all levels to ensure that through that partnership, as I said earlier, we are going to strengthen at speed and scale. And sometimes research gets down to the very small level, such as a child who needs speech pathological help. And so we mentioned that at the beginning. This is not just an artificial intelligence institute. There's a lot of those around, frankly. This one is devoted to speech pathology needs of children. Yes. So, you know, if you look at the possibilities, right, I mean, you look at every child. We all know this. Every child is a gift of God. And therefore, basically, you can you can already see that it is our responsibility to see how we can take that innate latent talent and express it in its fullest form. And so these kinds of projects, therefore, make possible development of new ideas and new technologies, but also understanding the core issues and see how we can help these children to express their talent in the fullest form. So uh, the AI project, the AI Institute that you talked about that we have launched recently, I'm very proud of that. Because AI is often thought of as, oh, but it is you know, only for the so-called haves, but it is not. AI is about haves, have-nots, everybody. Everybody can benefit from this AI revolution. And that's what NSF is committed to, to unleashing the possibilities everywhere. My guest is Dr. Saturaman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. All right. And so what is the grand challenge here in speech pathology? The grand challenge is, I mean, basically, how do we assist a kid with speech issues to be able to take and understand what the issues are and develop personalized mechanisms by which we can bring out their talent and their abilities to the fullest form? And that's personalized. Every individual is different. You know, it's not a, you know, a one-size-fits-all approach. So with AI, what you do is it's almost like a human and a machine working together as partners, learning from each other, and therefore making those possibilities for every individual. And depending on what their specific challenges might be, and in case of speech pathology, it is about you know, speech-related and language-related issues that then are addressed in a very targeted manner so that they are able to get their best talent expressed. And this will be by a $20 million grant to the Education Institute of Education Sciences at uh, University of Buffalo. We found that that group had, uh, through their partnerships, developed a very strong set of you know, ideas and then translatable possibilities and impact. And we looked at it and, uh, of course, the gold standard review process determined that this was an outstanding proposal. So that's why NSF chose to invest in this, because we know that it's going to produce some remarkable possibilities. Well, you've got a lot going on. I just wanted to wrap up with what about the human capital requirements of the NSF itself, because each one of these initiatives, and we only touched on a few of them under the funding coming up in this coming fiscal year, the current fiscal year, you need a program manager. So are you adding program managers and are you looking to staff up just to make sure that there's good oversight and management of all of these growing numbers of programs? Tom, absolutely. I mean, uh, NSF as an agency, we take pride in the fact that 94% of our resources of the budget disseminated to the people that do the real work and get maximal impact. So we try to keep our operations to as minimal as possible, but delivering on all the operational savviness that is required and to ensure that all the compliance as well as oversight is also built in. So we will, yes, we will add some people, but we are always mindful of the fact that we need to do that with technology also as an assist. How much can you do things with technology? How much can we do with people? And where is that soft touch that is required and then expand where, you know, where there needs to be expansion. But always mindful of the fact that we should take advantage of the fact that 
there are technologies that can also be used and deployed to deliver quality outcomes. Right. And you need a pretty good dashboard yourself to look at every morning. Absolutely. Every facet of this agency is something that we want to look at and how we are doing. Are we challenging ourselves more? Are we being more innovative? I always say, Tom, that if we are the agency that is responsible for essentially unleashing innovation everywhere, it starts right at home. Are we an agency that is using innovation in everything that we do? Are we looking inward and making sure that we're doing the best possible way of finding solutions to problems inside the agency in every aspect of our operations? Yes, the answer is yes. Dr. Setraman Panchanathan is director of the National Science Foundation. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was truly a pleasure talking to you. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Stay smart. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Still to come, enterprise risk management is soaking deeper into most federal agencies. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. New evidence shows agencies are managing their enterprise risks to better aid decision-making. That's one of the big trends from the 8th Annual Survey by the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management, a firm. Still, a firm found ERM has a long way to go. Marianne Roth is the chief risk officer for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Affirm president. Kate Silvis is an enterprise risk management practice leader at GuideHouse. They tell Federal News Network's Jason Miller why ERM is accelerating. You hear Roth first. I think that you've seen greater buy-in for ERM across the board, and you see much more advanced analytic activities and analytical abilities um, in of um, ERM programs. And I think that you also see a lot more integration of the ERM function across other key operational areas in the organizations, like alignment with the strategic plan, aligning with budget, aligning with cybersecurity. Um, all of those things, I think, are significant changes and really demonstrate how ERM is becoming part of the way agencies just do business rather than an added responsibility or something that is um, not, not as valuable for, for their um, overall objectives. Generally speaking, when you saw the survey results, and there's plenty to talk to, we'll get more details. Did that surprise you that ERM is being more, is deeper into the agency culture, deeper into the agency thinking? Because it's not just folks like yourself who are practitioners, but really other people are starting to think about those risks. Did that surprise you at all? It didn't surprise me, but I, w- I was very happy to see that. You know, I think that as ERM practitioners, it's always a challenge to to demonstrate the value of ERM or effectively communicate the value of ERM in a way that those who aren't practicing it can easily understand. So I think that it demonstrates that agencies are able to do that, that they're able to demonstrate the value of ERM and integrate more. This is Kate, Jason, if I could add uh, an additional point to that. One of the things that we did see this year, we've been doing this survey for eight years. This is the eighth year. And as Marianne mentioned earlier, ERM became part of OMBA 123 in 2016. And so we've had eight years um, of this requirement. And I think that one of the things that we have seen is that the duration of ERM programs is getting longer. Uh, And the longer that you have to do something, the more you can move into some, I would call it more sophisticated activities around ERM rather than some of the foundational aspects of setting up a program, developing principles, 
um, you know, running enterprise risk assessments. And now we're moving into that integration or how do you use all of the data uh, that an agency has in order to do you know, better data analytics and look at key risk indicators, key performance indicators, and how does that drive uh, your decision making? And so I think the duration and the maturity of some of our programs that have been around for a long time are helping to drive some of the changes that we're seeing um, around integration, around uh, some of these more sophisticated aspects of ERM. Kate, that's actually a really interesting point, a really important point because of uh, that's really the key, right? It's great that people know what ERM is. It's great that people understand the, the concepts, but seeing the value in it. And I was actually going to ask you to, to maybe comment on that, put, put on not just your firm hat as someone who helped with the survey, but, but your guidehouse hat as someone who works with agencies on this stuff. Are you seeing a, a different discussion that's happening with clients or potential clients? Yes, depending on the maturity of the agency. One of the things that I was really excited about this year was the change in the amount of organizations that have identified and are using risk appetite. Now, I hope they haven't just put a risk appetite statement in place to put a risk appetite statement in place, but they're actually using that conversation to make trade-offs. And that is some of the conversations that I'm having with executive risk committees is around how do I use risk appetite to make a resource trade-off or a trade-off around my objectives? So many agencies have strategic plans. They have very specific objectives that they are trying to achieve. And when I talk about risk appetite with them now, it's about what types of risks are you going to take in order to achieve those objectives? Not only what risks are you trying to avoid to, to keep you from not meeting those objectives, but what do you actually have to take from a risk perspective? And we don't often talk about risk taking in the federal government. Um, we tend to be extremely risk averse, but there are a lot of really big, challenging, complex objectives that the administration um, you know, wants to achieve and that has you know, come down to each of the agencies have to have those same objectives. And I think we have to talk about what risks we're willing to take uh, in order to achieve those big complex objectives, because we're not going to be able to do it if we have a completely risk averse approach uh, to, to, to our risk taking and to our objectives. And if I could add on to that, that this is Marianne, I think that's an excellent point, Kate. And I would say that relying on risk appetite to help inform your decision-making allows agencies to better adapt to the highly dynamic environment that they're, they're operating in. You know, um, prior to the pandemic, it made sense to have like a five-year strategic plan, but now it feels like <laughs> every every six months, your entire, your entire environment is completely different. So I think that having risk appetite clearly articulated allows agencies to and decision makers to you know make more effective trade-offs given the, the current environment and understanding how that will um, that will change in the near future. Mary and, and Kate, you both bring up really interesting points about risk appetite. And that's something that, that came through in the survey. First, I guess, did you have to define what risk appetite was or do people generally who you're surveying understand that concept? And then let's delve into what is a risk appetite besides your appetite for risk? I, I'll make that obvious uh, connection. Marianne, maybe start us off. 
Sure. Well, I'll let Kate speak to the definition of risk appetite in the survey and um, people's understanding of it. But um, in general, I would say that risk appetite is becoming more and more accepted and more and more understood across the federal government. And that it's it's not just about putting a, a document on paper, it's you know, or stating an appetite on paper. It's really about providing those within the organization guardrails so that they know how to operate and how to navigate the highly complex and dynamic environment that we're all working in. So I'll talk about definitions. Uh, we did not define in the survey itself uh, risk appetite. OMB A123 has the definition of risk appetite included. And so we do make an assumption that if you are responding to the survey, you are in the risk management world uh, and either have read OMB A123 or um, the COSO Enterprise Risk Management Framework, uh, the definitions in those two documents uh, for risk appetite are the same. I love what Marianne said because that's what I'm seeing as well is there's just, there's a change in conversation around risk appetite. And I have been challenging my clients to not just look at risk appetite, which is defined as the amount and type of risk an organization is willing to accept in the pursuit of their objectives, not look at it just from that risk perspective, but look at it from an objectives perspective. How much risk am I willing to take or how much risk do I need to take for me to achieve this objective? Marianne Roth is the chief risk officer for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. Kate Silvis is an enterprise risk management practice leader at GuideHouse. They were both speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more at federalnewsnetwork.com. Congressional Democrats are once again trying to prevent a future version of Schedule F. A new bill called the Saving the Civil Service Act marks the third attempt in Congress to try to legislate away the possibility of revival of the Trump-era executive order that made certain senior executive service members easier to fire. The new bill has some new details, though. We get them from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, just uh, the quick explanation for those that may not have heard yet, Schedule F and its reviled provisions. Schedule F, it's been a big topic for a couple of years, ever since the executive order from 2020 under the Trump administration. As you said, it would have essentially allowed a presidential administration to reclassify some federal positions outside merit system principles. This would be for policy-related positions, and that would have impacted potentially up to 50,000 federal employees and essentially making them easier to fire. The idea was to create more flexibility and to be able to more easily remove poor performing federal employees. But it was only around for a couple of months, and Biden, as soon as he stepped into office, revoked that executive order. Some agencies had taken initial steps to reclassify, but ultimately it didn't really nothing really came from it. Sure. So the Saving the Civil Service Act would do what then exactly? Just say no more Schedule F? I mean, that was a term of the Trump administration. What does the law say? In so many words, it it is a target at preventing a future Schedule F type policy. But what it really says, what it really boils down to is blocking 
any presidential administration from ordering agencies to reclassify federal positions outside merit system principles. So there's not really a mention directly of Schedule F necessarily, but it would block similar types of executive orders or policies in the future. The caveat there in the legislation is that if Congress gives approval to reclassify a position, then agencies could go ahead and do so. But other than that, they wouldn't be allowed to. And this version of the bill, the Saving the Civil Service Act, it originated in the House with Representative Jerry Connolly and Senator Tim Kaine introduced the Senate version of the legislation. Senator Kaine spoke at a union rally about why he introduced the bill. Second thing we got to do is make sure, particularly on the Republican House side or for future administrations, that nobody tries to use this Schedule F scam to destroy civil service. So I have a save Civil Service Act with others that we're going to try to get passed as part of the defense bill this year so that we can avoid a a hollowing out of the civil service. The last thing we want to do is give presidents, frankly, presidents of either party, the ability to use patronage to sack people if they don't feel like they're loyal. You should be loyal to the citizens you serve, not to a particular occupant of any office. And Drew, relative to earlier attempts at this bill in the prior sessions of Congress, this one has some changes a little bit. What are some of the nuances there? The clearest change for it is the fact that it's been renamed the Saving the Civil Service Act. Previously, it was called Preventing a Patronage System Act. But there are some nuances in the actual text of the bill. It would, for one, require OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, to approve a transition before an agency could actually transfer an employee from the competitive service to the accepted service. Another requirement under the new version of the bill would be that federal employees would have to consent before an agency could transfer or reclassify a position between different services. And finally, it would also cap how many transfers agencies could make within a four-year period, i.e. a presidential term. The total number of transferred positions would be limited to just 1% of the total number of employees at an agency or just five employees at the maximum, whichever is greater of the two. And according to Kane's staff, some of those changes were just generally made to try to strengthen protections for federal employees. Yeah, I wonder if those would stand up to a constitutional challenge, regardless of whether it's a good or bad idea. But I just wonder if that's congressional prerogative to go that deeply into the day-to-day management of of the executive branch. Just asking rhetorically, I don't really know. Now, as we mentioned at the top, this is the third time a bill like this has been introduced. What gives it a decent chance this year? This year, the House version already has a Republican co-sponsor on the bill, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick. And even though it was absent from the final version of the National Defense Authorization Act, Kane has said that the NDAA is still the most likely course for the bill to actually go through. He said that it didn't really have a chance to be introduced as a floor amendment last time around, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has already committed to having a floor amendment process this year, which Kane says that means basically that they will be able to get a vote on this bill. And he's hoping that it, that will kind of change things for the likeliness of it to be included in the NDAA. But even though it's, you know, it's February right now, 
he says that the timeline on this is no earlier than September. It's going to be a while before anything really moves forward on this. And Representative Connolly, who introduced the House version of the bill, he talked about more he talked more about why he is continuing to push forward with this legislation at an AFGE legislative conference. A nonpartisan, non-politicized civil service is not a new idea. Protecting that is really critical, and it's a critical part of our mission. We haven't won that fight. I got that bill passed in the House, but it didn't survive the conference with the Senate. So we're going to try again. All right. Thank you. And we won't cease until we win. All right. A regular Samuel L. Gompers there, Jerry Connolly. And I am presuming that the advocacy groups for federal employees, the big federal employee unions, are probably in favor of this bill to get rid of Schedule F since both of those fiery speeches were made at union events. Yep, you would be correct in your assumption there, Tom. A lot of federal unions and advocacy groups, different organizations have already voiced very strong support for this legislation. It's been a couple of years just in parallel with the progress of this bill over the course of three years that unions and these types of organizations are continuing to to follow suit and just push along with the, the lawmakers. Here. Well, it's an old question. You know, if you are a senior civil servant and you are not having party allegiance, nevertheless, sometimes policies come along from a president or an administration that you vehemently disagree with as a person or based on your experience in the civil service. And there have been some highly public resignations of career people over the years during, uh, I can remember several during the administration. I think what presidents, what administrations worry about is the prospect of people slow walking or somehow passively, aggressively thwarting policy that they have sworn as civil servants to carry out. Not an easy answer. And just being able to mass fire people is not the answer either. So I'm not sure we'll ever get a clear cut definitive answer to that issue, huh? No, I think you're right. I think it is a very complicated topic. And, you know, even though some unions or organizations might say Schedule F wasn't the answer there maybe is it points to a greater need for some sort of reform in in some other way but as you said that is really complicated and not something that we've seen yet all right federal news network's drew friedman thanks so much thanks tom and check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com still to come how the national science foundation is dealing with a record budget This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 